0: Good morning, morning. so good to be with you all. My name is Ethan Brown and whether you know it or not, I am your pastor to the University of Illinois. Uh, Our family moved to Champaign-Urbana a year ago and uh, I've been serving over the last year, serving students at the University of Illinois with the mission of reaching students for Christ and equipping them to serve. And I know that many of you are familiar with RUF's work with the Colquitts and the Hammonds here, Um, but I just wanna start uh, from the very beginning and thank you for the ways that you might not even be aware that your church is supporting and partnering the work that God is doing at the University of Illinois. I wish I could share story after story, but, Uh, I'll just leave it with uh, the, the truth that God is using RUF at the U of I to bring students who did not know the gospel to faith in Jesus, to build up students into a community that can be a witness to the kingdom of God on that campus. And I'm just so grateful to be here to share God's word with you this morning, but would love to get to know you some after the service as well. Our sermon text for this morning is Psalm chapter 24, uh, which we just read. And I didn't plan this, but it ended up working well in God's timing that Pastor Nick would start a series on the Psalms last week. And a little bit of background on this Psalm might be a little bit helpful before we pray and dive in. This is a Psalm that King David wrote in reflection upon a significant event in his life and in the history of God's people. After he defeated the Philistines, who were kind of the the big baddies, like the, the worst of the worst at that point in Israel's history, the chief enemies of God's people, after he defeated them and brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, the city that God had chosen. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a holy box. Uh, That's what it was. It was a box that represented God's special presence with his people before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when David defeated God's enemies and brought this holy box back into Jerusalem, it was symbolic of God returning to the place that he had chosen of God going on a pilgrimage, in a sense, and arriving in Jerusalem. And eventually, that holy box, the Ark of the Covenant, would be put in the temple. Now, there's one other thing we need to know before we pray, and that is that later on in Israel's history, this psalm would be used as a pilgrim psalm. When God's people, uh, Israel, the the family of God, when they journeyed to Jerusalem for one of the high feasts, for something like the Passover, they would pray and sing the words of this song, of this song, almost as if they were following after on on a journey that God had marched ahead of them. So that's a little bit of context. I want to pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll dive in and unpack this beautiful message from God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. Uh, You have responded to the pleas of your people, and you have sent us your Holy Spirit. Without him, we would have no hope of hearing these words and being changed. But with him and because of his presence, we can see our Lord Jesus with eyes of faith and be changed because of it. God, I recognize that many of us are coming here this morning having had a different kind of week with different positions of the heart, different concerns and distractions, and I pray that no matter where we're at in our walk with you or how we're feeling this morning, that you would speak to us where we are and that we would be changed because of it. We pray this for the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. A number of years ago, uh, towards the beginning of my marriage to my wife, Amanda, we were on a long road trip. And I think that the Christian life is a little bit like a long road trip. Uh, Road trips have their kind of normal, ordinary challenges, right? Uh, Your knees start to get a little stiff. If you're anything like me, it was almost inevitable that on these long road trips we'd get into some fight that we were like subconsciously putting off for a while. Uh, so there, there are ordinary, almost mundane challenges to a road trip, right? But this particular road trip that we were on, uh, I received a text from my dad. Uh, it was one of those texts that you never want to receive that said something like, son, call me as soon as you can. So I I call him and I get news that in some ways I was already guessing. Uh, He told me that my Nana had passed away. Uh, His mom, my Nana who prayed for me every day of my life, uh, who gave me the Bible that I'm preaching from this morning. The Christian life is a journey It's a pilgrimage like this psalm shows us, and it's full of ordinary, even mundane challenges, whether that looks like changing toddlers' bedsheets for some of you or preparing corporate spreadsheets. Uh, there, There are ordinary challenges that we face on this journey, but then there are moments when there's deep pain, when there's a mass shooting in our neighborhoods, when we get that phone call that delivers the bad news. So where do we turn? Our our children's sermon this morning was incredibly fitting. Where do we turn in those moments? Well, I hope we'll see from Psalm 24 this morning that we have good news of a king who is not only with us on our journey, but has run ahead of us so that we, we can keep following after him on the path that he's placed us on. And as we unpack that together, we'll see three big things from our psalm this morning. First, in verses 1 through 2, we'll think about belonging to the king. In verses 3 through 6, we'll consider approaching the king. And then in verses 7 through 10, we'll zero in on this idea of following after our king Jesus. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. If you were an ancient Israelite and you were reading these words that King David wrote, it would have almost automatically prompted a a memory in your mind, thinking back to some of the earliest words in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. You would have thought of Genesis 1 and 2, when we're told about God's creation of all things, when he established his children, Adam and Eve, in the garden, between the rivers. This language of verses 1 and 2 is is pointing back to that moment. And there are passages in the Bible, aren't there, uh, that are really difficult to understand. Thankfully, the Apostle Peter even admits this much in one of his letters. He says that there are things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. But Psalm 24, 1 and 2 is not one of those passages. The challenge is not understanding the point. The challenge is actually living like it's true. Because the logic of these verses is that God made everything, therefore, God owns everything. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, or as someone who's been around the church for a long time, Uh, that's probably not a controversial claim to you. You're probably tracking with me as I say that. But I want to challenge you and myself to look for a moment at our lives. Whether you're here this morning as a Christian or someone exploring the claims of the Bible, does it look like your life is based upon the belief that God made you and that therefore you belong to him. I think very often, if we look honestly, it appears like the statement that we live our lives based upon is that we belong to ourselves. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, right? Uh, It's really a problem of the, the sin in our hearts that goes back to the garden, back to the very beginning. But we are living in a culture that is telling us Day after day, from all sorts of different directions, that we belong to ourselves, and that that's a good thing. But Psalm 24 challenges us on that misconception. Let's think about a couple of examples. We believe that our time belongs to us. Uh, I remember uh, discovering the gem of the Midwest a number of months ago. Uh, You know what I'm talking about, Meyer. I discovered Meijer for the first time, and it was explained to me as kind of a cross between a grocery store and a Walmart, and I, I've enjoyed getting to know Meyer. But if, you, if you've ever been to a Meyer, then you've probably experienced what I have, which is after you've done your shopping and you've checked out, you're preparing to leave the store, and one of the attendants, someone that works for Meyer, says to you very kindly, uh, very sweetly, thanks for coming to Meyer. Now, there have been moments, there have been times on past trips when I have been, uh, I'm ashamed to say, but if I'm being honest with myself, I would say that I felt stuck in a conversation with one of these people. Now, why does it bug me when I, I have to spend a few extra moments exchanging with someone at Meyer? even though they're just being kind and welcoming to me. It's because I believe my time belongs to me. Uh, Who is this attendant to impose upon my calendar, my plans? And I think you've probably felt something like this before as well. We believe our time belongs to us because we believe that we belong to ourselves. We live in a culture that tells us in all sorts of different ways, from the left and the right, so to speak, that our bodies belong to ourselves. Uh, No one can tell you whom you ought to love, how you ought to dress, how you should eat, how you should exercise. There are all sorts of ways that we believe our bodies ultimately belong to us because we believe that we belong to ourselves. Now, those are just two examples. We could keep unpacking this. But the the point I really want to make from God's word this morning from verses 1 and 2 is that it is good news that you do not belong to yourself. It is good news that you actually belong to the God who made you. That it is because that is true that it is not on you to discover your identity and express it to the world and to justify your existence. As freeing as those things might sound, they they are burdens that we can't possibly carry. We can know for sure that regardless of your performance this past week, whether that's in your work or in your home or in your quiet times, that you have a definite value and significance and purpose, not because of what you have done, but simply because you are God's creature. He's made you with intentionality and love. You belong to him. And what that means is we can rest. Uh, We can hop off of the hamster wheel of performance where we feel like we always have to be doing the next thing, keeping up with the Joneses. If we belong to ourselves, it's on you to get into the right school. It's on you to find the right spouse. It's on you to have the right kind of children. It's on you to have the perfect quiet time. But if you belong to God, those things might be worth pursuing. But you can have rest in your souls because your value comes from the one who loves you and made you, the one to whom you belong. Now, I want to turn and focus on verses 3 through 6, because here we get another vision of God, our king. In the first couple of verses, we get this idea of God as the king over creation. He made it all, so he owns it all, right? It's almost as if creation is patented or trademarked or copyrighted by God. It's got his stamp of ownership. But here in verses three through six, we get a vision of God as the king who's seated in the temple. And these verses are related to one another, right? David wrote them as one psalm. And really, verses three through six are getting at another kind of belonging. But we're gonna think about it as approaching the king. In verses one through two, We're told about the good news that everyone who's made by God, whether you trust in Jesus this morning or not, your life has value and purpose because God made you. But there's actually a better, a fuller, a more beautiful kind of belonging that's offered to God's people. It's the belonging that the Heidelberg Catechism talks about in its very first question, which goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How can we come not just to belong to God as His creatures, but to be able to approach Him, to have an intimate relationship with Him, to even be called His children? I think verses 3 through 6 help us to understand how that can be. This section, David begins with a couple of questions. He says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, and who can stand in his holy place? Another way to ask those questions is to frame it this way. Who can approach God in his temple? The hill of the Lord that David's talking about there is Mount Zion. It's the hill in Jerusalem that the temple would eventually be built on. And this hill, this Mount Zion, was not an impressive or tall mountain from a human perspective, but it was the place where God chose to dwell. So we're being asked, how can we approach the God who made everything, who owns everything, How can we approach this God in his temple to have an intimate relationship with him? And David gives us an answer in verse 4. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's possible that we would hear that and feel like that's kind of a random list that David kind of arbitrarily picked uh, these different requirements. But I, upon closer examination, uh, we see that that's not the case. To have clean hands is to honor and please God in the things that we do. To have a pure heart is to be righteous and holy and Pleasing to the Lord in the things that we think with our minds, the things that we desire, the things that other people can't see. To not lift up your soul to what is false is to refrain from worshiping anything other than God. Even if it's a good thing, right? Idolatry in the Bible is not just bowing down to a carved idol. It's loving anything, even a good thing, more than God. I've heard it put this way, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And finally, we're told that we're not to swear deceitfully, which is a way that we use our words to bring harm to our neighbors. So these last two requirements that David gives actually correspond in a really cool way with what Jesus would teach when he walked on the earth, that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So, what's the sum? Uh, What's the point that David is making here that God wants to drive home for us this morning? It's that if you want to approach him in his temple, you need to be morally perfect. You need to be comprehensively holy. Holy. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting in a waiting room for your dream job. Maybe it's in downtown Chicago or Silicon Valley or maybe you already have your dream job, but you can follow along with my thought experiment. You're waiting in this waiting room and you're feeling pretty nervous because you were up the whole night before preparing for this interview with the impressive executive that sits in the impressive office. And you've got your cup of coffee in hand because you're tired, because you lost sleep the night before. But then you see candidate after candidate after candidate leaving that impressive office with their interview with the impressive executive. And they're looking discouraged and dejected, like they've been torn to shreds. Well, finally, your name is called, and you nervously, excitedly stand up quickly but you've forgotten the cup of coffee that was on your lap and it spills forward and gets its dark stain all over your white shirt. (laughs) Maybe some of you have experienced something like this before, Uh, but even if you haven't, I think you can imagine what you would feel in that moment. You wouldn't feel confident to go into that office. You'd probably feel ashamed you'd probably want more than anything else to run away and hide. If that is how I think all of us would feel in that hypothetical scenario, how should we feel in the situation that we're actually in? That we don't have a stained shirt going before an executive in an Armani suit. We have a stained soul a soul stained by sin, going before the God who made heaven and earth. We have no hope of having an intimate relationship with this holy God, of approaching him in his temple on our own. But there is one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The message at the heart of the Bible, at the heart of our faith, is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to live the life you could not live, and then he died the death that you deserve to die. It would be as if right after you spilled that coffee on your shirt, the ideal candidate walks in, and he or she takes off their clean white shirt and gives it to you. They replace your mediocre resume with their own they write you the the greatest letter of recommendation that's ever been written. That would change the way that you approach that executive in the office, wouldn't it? Jesus has done so much more for us. We can approach God today in bold prayer and worship, not on the basis of our performance, but on his. And the day is coming when each and every one of us will stand before God's throne, and we will be able to approach him because of what Jesus has done. We will be able to stand in the judgment and be welcomed into his presence because of our Lord Jesus. Well, Lastly, in verses 7 through 10, I want us to see two more visions of the king in this section. Remember, King David wrote this psalm in reflection upon this event in his life when he defeated God's enemies and brought the ark into Jerusalem. Well, I think that this psalm, and I'm not alone in this, is actually pointing us ahead to to another victory when another king defeated the enemies of God's people. It's pointing us ahead to the victorious ascension of our Lord Jesus after he defeated, not the Philistines, but Satan, and death, and our sin, and he overcame the world. We see here God is being described as our warrior, the warrior king that David points us to. He's called the Lord of hosts. Now, that might sound like familiar language to you if you grew up in the church singing hymns or Christmas carols, but what does it mean? It means God is the Lord of armies, He's the Lord of armies. He's being presented here as the king who's victorious after the battle. But the the ascent here, we're talking about ascending the hill, right, is not actually about climbing up the small mountain in Palestine, Mount Zion, where the, the earthly temple was. We get a hint here that there's another ascent in view. There's another hill in mind. That word ancient, next to ancient doors, could also be translated eternal. I think we have here a vision ahead of time of that moment in history, a thousand years after David wrote this psalm, when Jesus ascended the hill of heaven, when he returned to the place that he belonged when the gates were opened wide for him, their rightful king. So we see here almost a twin vision of God, our warrior king, who's fought our battles, and God is the pilgrim, the one who's gone ahead of us, who's finished the race, who's arrived at the place of glory, the place where nothing is bad and no one is sad, and now that king Jesus is calling us to follow after him. But if we're really going to be impacted and shaped and transformed by this victory that Jesus accomplished in history, uh, we can't skim over, we can't forget the cost. The author Anne Lamott tells a story of an eight-year-old boy whose little sister is diagnosed with leukemia. And as some of you might know, a common part of a treatment plan for someone with leukemia is a blood transfusion. And it was determined that this little boy, the eight-year-old, was a match for his sister. So his parents come to him, and they ask him if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister, and he responds, I'll need to think about it. You can imagine how the parents might have felt, but they they recognize it's kind of a heavy and scary thing to ask an eight-year-old, So they give him time and he says, I'll give you my answer in the morning. Well, the next morning he comes to his parents and he says, all right, I thought about it and I'll do it. I'll I'll give my blood to my sister. Well, later on, on the operating table, so to speak, when the blood transfusion is about to take place, the boy turns to his doctor and he asks him, will it start happening right away? And the doctor's a little confused, so the boy asks a clarifying question. Yes, will I start dying right away? The boy was confused. He thought that his parents were asking him to give all of his blood to his sister so that she could have life. Now, that's a moving story. It's beautiful to hear about the love that this boy had for his sister, but it's actually just a, a small picture of an even more beautiful story because Jesus Christ was not confused. He knew that for you to have the victory that's described in verses 7 through 10, that he would have to be conquered for you before he could become your conquering king. He knew that for you to be welcomed at the last day, for you to be welcomed, for the gates to be opened for you, that he would have to be cast out, hung on a tree outside Of the city gates. He knew that for you to have life, he would have to give all of his blood. When we remember that this is who our King is, that he's the one we belong to because he made us, he's the one who allows us to approach our God and have an intimate relationship with him, that he's calling us to follow after him on the race he's already run, which includes suffering for all of us who follow Jesus but ends in glory. I think it can change the way that we live our day-to-day lives, whether we're struggling with the mundane or with deep pain. Because being a disciple of Jesus is not just about believing what Jesus tells us to believe and doing the things he tells us to do, as important as both of those things are. It's about marching the same path, following him on the same journey, where we end in the presence of our Father, who loves us. And that's true no matter where you're at or what you're struggling with or feeling this morning. I mentioned earlier that long road trip that Amanda, my wife, and I were on together. What I didn't tell you is that we were on our way to a wedding. We were going to celebrate and worship and party with dear friends of ours as they made vows before God and before many witnesses. The fact that I was going to that wedding did not make the death of my Nana irrelevant. Uh, It didn't take away the pain, but it was a a reminder to me of the truth of, of what the scriptures teach, that all of us are headed for a wedding. History ends in a wedding. And the book of Revelation describes it as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, That doesn't take away your struggle with the ordinary challenges, the mundane aspects of your Christian life. It doesn't make your pain irrelevant. God calls us to lean on him and wrestle with him and call out to him in our pain. But it does change the way that we respond. It does change the way that we experience our deepest suffering. We're all headed for a wedding because our Lord Jesus made us, He paved the way for us to approach our Father, and he's calling us to keep following after him, giving us all the strength that we need. Would you please pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's nothing that we need more than a vision of you. There's nothing that we need more than seeing you clearly. I thank you that you've given us your word and your spirit that even now we can look through a glass dimly. We can behold you. We can begin to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. I pray that even as we prepare to go from here, that we would continue with eyes of faith to gaze at our ascended Lord Jesus, the one who's paved the way, who's with us, who calls us onward. And we long for that day, God, when we will see the glory of God on full display in the face of Jesus Christ, that we will behold you and be changed and experience life and joy everlasting. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.